every morning I would do the same things. Wake up, roll out of bed, put on my slippers, turn on the coffee pot, and take out the dog. Then my wife would get up and start to make breakfast. Then my two-year-old son. You want to read it again? Okay. All right. Okay, come to your dada. Sit down. We'd read books. I'm a bulldozer is a big hit right now. Pushy? You darn tootin' I'm pushy. A bull. Yeah, I'm a bulldozer. The freight trains pass by our house in the morning, and when I hear the whistle, I pick him up and race to the window so he can watch them as they pass by. This morning, I glance at my phone. It's almost time to take my son to daycare and head to the office, but I don't step outside. I won't. Like so many people in the world, my morning routine has stayed the same since the coronavirus. But the rest, it seems, is up in the air. Before all of this, my days were full and rarely spent indoors. This is LA, after all. Why would I stay inside? I would leave the house in the morning, I'd drop my son off at daycare, head to the office, and then I'd check in with colleagues, in between phone calls with clients and pitch meetings. I ran a busy, successful podcast production house. Some days I spent hours in gridlock driving across LA, meetings in Culver City, West Hollywood, Highland Park. I was on a plane every other week. But now the city, the country, the whole world is on lockdown. The virus is spreading. My son's school is closed. I'm speaking to you from my bedroom. This is the way life will be for weeks, months. Nobody knows how long. People are dying from the coronavirus, just miles from the room where I put my son to sleep each night. All around the world, we are mostly indoors, just waiting, trying to avoid the virus and each other, waiting for it to pass through our towns like some giant wave. Movie theaters shut down, concerts canceled, the NBA ended its season. We are living through an unprecedented, generation-defining moment, each of us, alone, in isolation from one another. I needed to find a way to connect us, to create a place for us to document our stories as we are living them. From Neon Hum Media, this is Telescope. I'm your host, Jonathan Hirsch. And Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for the foreseeable future, we're going to bring you stories of people who are far away, up close, and how each of us are learning to live through this pandemic. Meet Carmen. My name is Carmen Graterol or Carmen Graterol. <laughs> <laughs> Carmen lives in Mexico City, but she's from Venezuela. In the past month, she had two trips planned, one for her friend's wedding in Dubai and another trip to Caracas to visit family. A lot of airlines won't permit travel six months from the date of expiration on your passport, and so Carmen had the trip planned out just right. She'd leave on March 12th and come back on the 27th. My passport expires on September 29th, which means that I could travel internationally until March 29th. She knew it was cutting it close. 
In Venezuela, it could take up to a year to get her passport renewed. When Carmen boarded her flight, coronavirus hadn't yet reached Venezuela. But the country was already in crisis. The hospitals had been collapsing for years. People were going hungry. There were blackouts. But this trip was important. My dad just had cancer. My grandmother is 92 years old. So I thought it was like a good idea to go back home and and visit them. Little I knew that there was going to be a pandemic crisis at the same time. What was it like before you left? Yeah, I mean, by the time I left Mexico, there were not any official cases in Venezuela yet of coronavirus. So I wasn't... Like, I wasn't aware of the risk of getting stranded there. Um, When I learned that they were taking, like, you know, radical uh, measures, especially when it came to the airport, it was when I had my stopover in Panama going there. That's when I learned that there were two cases and they were um, canceling all flights from and to Europe and Colombia. So you're on the plane and... It's not until you're on the plane and you're already on your way to Venezuela that you realize that all of this is going on. It's funny because the way the way I found out uh, was in a WhatsApp group that I have with some of my friends. One of my friends, he jokes a lot and he said like, and he knew I was on my way to Venezuela. And like, as any other Venezuelan can relate, my worst nightmare is to be trapped there without any means to go out, to leave the country, you know? So he said, he messaged something along the lines of like, oh, Maduro just um, canceled and every flight coming in and leaving to Europe and Colombia. But I thought he was joking, to be honest, because that's his kind of humor. And by the time I landed in Venezuela, I had an issue with my luggage and when I was, you know, presenting the report for them to find my suitcase, the airline worker is telling a, another passenger that's coming from Europe, the president just announced this um, cancellation on all flights coming from Europe. That's when I realized it was happening. But by then I was already in Caracas, like, you know, I, I just landed there. There wasn't anything I could do. Venezuela is home for her family. But by now, Carmen had made a life in Mexico City. She doesn't see her native country as her home anymore. And for many, many reasons, she didn't want to stay indefinitely. So as soon as she lands, she's trying to find a way to get back to Mexico City. I called the airline and I told them, like, yo, I'm a bit afraid, you know, Maduro canceled all these flights and, like, my flight is two weeks from now. I can't wait that long. Um, can you please give me a flight? Like, what's the earliest flight I can get? And they gave me one for Monday, uh, which I thought, you know, you know what? This should be good enough because by the time Maduro canceled the flights to Europe, that was a Thursday. And he said from Sunday midnight, um, all flights from Europe and Colombia won't, won't be permitted. So I thought, you know, I might have like... A 36, 48 win- hour window to leave the country. And today is Saturday, even if it's like, you know, the fastest, Monday should be cool. And um, by Saturday night, uh, we were at my family home. We were having some drinks, having some fun. 
and then my sister-in-law is on Twitter and says like, oh, it looks like Panama flights got canceled too. I was, and I started freaking out. I was like, since when? And she says like, well, apparently immediately. And that was when everything started, started like spiraling down. <laughs> That's when the nightmare started, basically. I called Copper Airline and I was like, so, you know, like there was an official announcement like half an hour ago that all flights are being canceled and I have this flight for Monday. What's going on? And the lady, uh, the airline worker on the customer service line tells me that so far they haven't been notified of that and that the flight's still going on. Uh, that I should keep an eye on their Twitter account and, you know, like for any further information. So that, I mean, helped a bit. I, I went to bed, of course, waking up every couple of hours, you know, checking Twitter. And I finally woke up at some point at 3 a.m. and checked Twitter. And it had the Copa airline Twitter saying that every flight to and from Venezuela was canceled for the next 30 days. So it was official. I was stranded. I started just messaging everyone that I had on my WhatsApp that, yeah, that morning. I mean, it was like 4 a.m. And right. one of my, yeah, one of my very good friends suggested that I talk to this other guy. I was like, listen, you know, like I presented myself. This is me. I'm like Sasha's friend. She just told me to reach out. Um, I know you work with private planes, like how much it would be, take me the closest <laughs> I can go to then take a commercial flight. And um, I, I mean, I'll be grateful for to him like forever because he took this as if it was his own problem. And he started reaching out to people that works closely to him, that works with commercial flights. And through him, I found a flight that very same night at 9 p.m., in a Venezuelan airline called Avior that was going to travel from Caracas to Peru that mm. up until that point was confirmed. I'm talking, it's at this point, it's like 1 p.m. Sunday. And he says like, I mean, until now it, it is confirmed uh, that it's going to leave the country. And you're flying Caracas, Peru tonight at 8 p.m. And then tomorrow morning, uh, 9 a.m. You're flying Peru, Mexico City, and he says it's two thousand four hundred dollars that you need to pay right now. Mm. I was like, "Fuck!" I mean, <laughs> even like, okay. Did you have the money? Of course, I didn't. <laughs> I just went to Dubai for two weeks. I didn't have that kind yeah. of money. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, like all my friends that I've been talking to since all the crisis started, they, yeah. I mean, I'm so lucky and I was in the same amount, like I was overwhelmed by all this chaos, but also by all this love that I was receiving. Like yeah. <laughs> I think about it and I get emotional. I wasn't expecting that at all. When this person tells me like, you have a ticket, but it's $2,400. Um, I sent like I sent a message to one friend that reached out privately and told me like whatever it is, just let me know. And I told her like, okay, um, this is how much it is. I don't have. I had like three hundred dollars in cash and like three hundred more in my Mexican bank account, but that was it. And she said, okay, I can give you a thousand, 
and the next line on the chat says and Tony can give you an, another thousand Tony is her fiance Tony is a guy that I just met I met him last week and I was like surprised and overwhelmed like I was like oh my wow. god so I was like okay 2000 I already have them and she said tell me the the information I'll do the transfer right now you can't lose that flight so uh, I did that and I was like give me there he is you have 2000 give me five more minutes to find the other 400 so I reached out to another couple of friends and I was like okay I found this which happened at the same time and they were like I have half I have the other half where should I send it Wow, people are amazing. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't expecting that at all. The airport is like an hour and a half away from my family home, so hmm. I got out I got out of my child room, like, you know, my room where I grew up and I tell my mom, I have a flight. I have a debt, but I have a flight. Take me to the airport. I don't care to be there like six hours before the flight. I just I gotta be there. And she's like, Okay, I'll take you. During all this time, while I was in Caracas, while I was seeing my mom and my auntie and all my family, my dad, my grandmother, who is like, who is who raised me, I couldn't even kiss them. I couldn't touch them. So I said bye to my mom. I, from afar, I couldn't hug her. I couldn't kiss her. Uh, I left the car and I went inside the airport. There was only, yeah, two airlines that were still having like a check-in line or anything. I get in line, waiting there yeah. for hours, hours, literally. There was a, already a line. Well, here I am, finally at the airport. And it was around this time that Carmen started recording herself. After a lot of crying and, and texting, um, I was lucky enough to find someone that was able to help me. By the time I um, I made it to the front of the line, the airline worker tells me, like, okay, everything cool. Like, I see your ticket. Okay, you have a seat. Yes. I was like, perfect. But there is one issue. Okay, I just checked in because I'm in Peru just for transit. I can't have luggage. So the only way that I was going to be able to make it to Lima to get my flight home uh, was with hand luggage because I couldn't go through immigration in Peru to get my passport stamped because I didn't have the visa. And to get my luggage, I would have to do that. So I was, I mean, I had to get rid of my suitcase basically. But I had a purse that was quite a big enough, so I like I packed in there um, the things that I didn't want to lose. Airline approved my hand luggage, of course. It was just a purse, and I go through security. Okay, well, that was scary. Um, police officer came by asking for the people boarding the flight to Lima, and I said, "Well, this is it, right?" I'm not taking off, but it was only a gate change. I'm walking there right now. I make it to the other gate and we're waiting and I'm like, okay, it seems like we're gonna board. We board, we are on the wrong way. Until I don't take off to Mexico, I won't be sure. But in the meantime, 
this is the best I have. I'm very lucky I'm here. Um, and I, I feel God has this. Yeah, God is on my side. It was literally the last flight. By the time that I was wow. waiting on the gate, the Venezuelan government already announced that all roads and airports and bus stations and everything, all sorts of traffic through land and air, international and national, was going to be completely shut down at midnight. So it was, and like, that was my chance. That was my only chance. Yes. Finally, we landed in Peru. Okay, um, government just entered the airplane. They're checking everyone's temperature uh, before we leave the plane. I'm waiting for my turn. But no, I finally made it. Um, the plane took off from... Lima to Mexico City, 9 a.m. that Monday. Uh, the airport was programmed to shut down at midnight that day. So like, and it was one of the very last flights to made it from Peru to Mexico. Ladies and gentlemen, we will be landing shortly. I'm making it home. We're about to land. I made it home. Fucking made it home. <laughs> Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? No. Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. I had like a tiny meltdown when I made it to my apartment. I couldn't believe um, that 24 hours before I was crying my heart out in my family home in Venezuela, wish, closing my, my eyes, wishing with all my heart that I would, you know, like open them and be home. Like, please, please, like, just take me home. That was the only thing I could think of. And that I made it, you know, like I opened the door and I was like so overwhelmed by being here. I couldn't believe it. I'm I'm really glad that you're OK after the the week that you've had. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and Carmen, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. Big thank you to Carmen for sharing her story with us. Telescope is made possible by the amazing team of producers, editors, and engineers that make up Neon Hum Media. I miss being in the office with you all. Today's episode was produced by Shara Morris, John Asante, and Mary Knopf. It was edited by Catherine St. Louis and Vikram Patel. Our engineer is Scott Somerville. Thanks to Matt McGinley for our theme music, 
and to Blue Dot Sessions for additional tracks you hear on this episode. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Neon Hum Media. We want to stay connected to you during this unprecedented time in our history. So please don't be shy. Share your stories with us. Our DMs are open. If you have a story of life in isolation because of the coronavirus that you want to share with us, email us at pitches at neonhum.com. I'm Jonathan Hirsch. We'll see you on Wednesday. Okay. Um, I'm finally in bed. I hope I can believe it. Um, <laughs> finally home. Tomorrow will be another day. <laughs> <laughs>